You're listening to Elk Point Baptist Church. Subscribe to our podcast to hear every sermon and like us on Facebook by searching Elk Point Baptist Church, located in Elk Point, South Dakota. John and Andrew asked him privately. So there's no question that he had particularly close relationship with Jesus because he was so often the means by which other people were personally introduced to the master. Andrew was the first of all the disciples to be called, as we see in John 1, 35 through 40. And you can turn there if you want to read along. John chapter 1, 35 through 40. It says, again the next day after John stood, John the Baptist, and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt, and abode with him that day. For it was about the tenth hour, which is about four o'clock. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now the other person in, in that context is, I believe, John, but it doesn't specify that clearly. As we shall see shortly, though, as we continue reading this section, he was responsible for introducing his more dominant brother, Peter, to Christ in verse 41 through 42. So we continue in verse 41. He first findeth his own brother. So right away, after verse 40, one of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So he, right away, when he started following Jesus, he first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. So Andrew's eagerness to follow Christ, combined with his zeal for introducing others to him, clearly represents Andrew's character. Peter and Andrew were originally from the village of Bethsaida, as we see in John 1.44. It says, Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So they were known for, for being from that town. Archaeologists have not yet determined the exact location of Bethsaida, but from its description in the New Testament, it's clear that it lay in the northern Galilee region. And based on the maps that I studied, it's about four miles approximately east of Capernaum. Um, so it's not too far, but the exact location apparently isn't determined. Interestingly, though, the name Bethsaida means house of fishing. So the town was known specifically just for fishing. At some point, the brothers relocated to the larger city of Capernaum, close by their hometown. In fact, Peter and Andrew shared a house in Capernaum, I keep changing, Capernaum, and ran a fishing business together from there. Capernaum gave them an especially advantageous location um, because it was actually situated on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, where fishing was good, and it was located at an intersection of key trade routes. So a lot of people went through that area, so it was good for their business. So Peter and Andrew had probably been lifelong companions with the other set of fishermen, the brothers from Caper Capernaum, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. The four of them 
shared common spiritual interests even before they met Jesus. They eventually took a sabbatical from the fishing business, visited the wilderness where John the Baptist was preaching, and became disciples of John. That is where they were when they first met Jesus. And when they returned to fishing before Jesus called them to a full-time discipleship, they remained together as partners. So these four had known each other probably since they were kids and, and stuck together the whole time. And they ended up being the main four in that group of 12. And that's why they were so cohesive as a unit. All four of them obviously wanted to be leaders. As a group, they exercised a sort of collective leadership over the other disciples. We have already seen that Peter was, was without question, the dominant one of the group. <clears throat> and the usual spokesman for all 12, sometimes whether they liked it or not. But it is clear that the four disciples in the inner circle all aspired to be leaders. That is why they sometimes had those arguments over who was the greatest. So in each scenario where they start arguing who, over, who is the greatest, it's these four that are doing it. Their eagerness to lead, which caused so many arguments when they were together as a group, ultimately became immensely valuable when these men went their separate ways as apostles in the early church. Jesus was training them for leadership, and in the end, they all filled important leadership roles in the early church. That is why scripture likens them to the very foundation of the church, as we see in Ephesians 2.20. It says, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Of the four in the inner circle, however, Andrew was the least to stand out. Scripture doesn't tell us a lot about him. You can practically count on your fingers the number of times he is mentioned specifically in the Gospels. In fact, apart from the places where all 12 disciples are listed, Andrew's name appears in the New Testament only nine times. And most of the, reference, most of the references simply mention him in passing. Andrew lived his life in the shadow of his better-known brother, Peter. Many of the verses that name him add that he was Peter's brother, as if that were the fact that made him significant. In such situations where no brother over, or sorry, in, in such situations where one brother overshadows another to such a degree, it is common to find resentment, strong sibling rivalry, or even alienation. They, they want to be separated, or they feel separated from that brother. But in Andrew's case, there is no evidence that he resented Peter's dominance. Again, it was Andrew who brought Peter to Christ in the first place. So he did this immediately and without hesitation. Of course, though, Andrew would have been fully aware of Peter's tendency to domineer or be that leader between the two of them. He must have known full well that as soon as Peter entered the company of disciples, he would take charge and Andrew would be then relegated to a secondary status. But Andrew brought his older brother anyway. Th that fact alone says a lot about his character. Almost everything scripture tells us about Andrew shows that he had the right heart for effective ministry in the background, not in the foreground. He did not seek to be the center of attention. He did not seem to resent those who labored in the limelight, like Peter. He was pleased to do what he could with the gifts and calling God had bestowed on him, and he allowed the others to do likewise. Of all the disciples in the inner circle, Andrew appears the least contentious, argumentative, and the most thoughtful. 
As we know already, Peter tended to be impulsive. He tended to rush ahead foolishly and to say wrong things at the wrong time. He was often overbearing, clumsy, hasty, and impulsive. James and John were nicknamed, the next two in this group, they were nicknamed Sons of Thunder because of their reckless tendencies. We see this in Mark 3.17. In James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, and he, being Jesus, surnamed them Boanerges, if I'm saying that correctly, which is the Sons of Thunder. They were also the ones who provoked many of the arguments about who was the greatest. But there's never a hint of, what, of that with Andrew. Whenever he speaks, which is rare in scripture, he always says the right thing, not the wrong thing. And whenever he acts apart from the other disciples, he does what is right. Scripture never attaches any dishonor to Andrew's actions when it mentions him by name. He didn't have a nickname like Peter did that was a derogatory name. His name was a good name. Um, there were certainly times when, following Peter's lead or acting in concert with all the disciples, Andrew made the same mistakes they made. But whenever his name is mentioned specifically, whenever he rises above the others and acts or speaks as an individual, scripture commends him for what he does. And he was an effective leader even though he never took the spotlight. So he is somebody that is in the background leading, not somebody you, you would always notice, but that's not a bad thing. Andrew and Peter, though brothers, had totally different leadership styles. G, or, sorry, Peter was perfectly suited for his calling as the main leader. Andrew was perfectly suited for his. That is why it is so important to recognize how God wants to use you and not how you compare to others around you that God is using. Each person has a specific role and we need to be happy with that role, whether it's in the background or in the foreground. God is going to use them effectively and Andrew was happy with his position. In fact, Andrew may be a better model for most church leaders than Peter because most who enter the ministry will labor in relative obscurity like Andrew as opposed to being renowned and prominent like Peter. Andrew's name actually means manly or manliness, and it seems a fitting description. Of course, the kind of net fishing he and the others did required no small degree of physical strength, but Andrew also had other characteristics of manliness that befit his name. He was bold, he was decisive, and he was deliberate. Nothing about him is feeble or wimpy. He was driven by a passion for the truth, and he was willing to subject himself to the most extreme kinds of hardship in pursuit of that objective. Remember that when James, or sorry, when Jesus met him for the first time, Andrew was already a devout man who had joined the ranks of John the Baptist's disciples. And the Bap John the Baptist was well known for his rugged appearance and his Spartan lifestyle, as we see in Matthew 3, 4. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a le leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. He was a guy out in the wilderness, and he was wild, and Andrew followed him willingly. That takes a little bit of, of commitment. <laughs> and manliness, probably. He lived and ministered in the wilderness, cut off from all the comforts and conveniences of city life. To follow John the Baptist as a disciple meant you, had, you could hardly be a soft guy. Turn with me to, to where I guess we're already in John 1. We're going to go back to verse 29. <clears throat> John's gospel describes Andrew's first meeting with Jesus. 
It took place in the wilderness where John the Baptist was preaching repentance and baptizing converts. The apostle John records the incident as an eyewitness because he and Andrew were there together as disciples of John the Baptist. Andrew's personal encounter with Jesus took place a few months after Jesus' baptism. We start reading in verse 29. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After, he, or after me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. So Andrew and John were standing next to the Baptist when Jesus walked by, the, by, and John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now in verse 35, again the next day after John stood and two of his disciples. So that's where we see that. And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold, the Lamb of God. They immediately left John's side and began to follow Jesus in verse 37. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. So without question, they had already been prepared for Jesus. They were hearing all about him. And then when John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, the one I'm speaking of, immediately Andrew and John left to follow Jesus. Don't I don't imagine, though, that they were being fickle or untrue to their mentor, John the Baptist. It was actually quite the opposite because John the Baptist had already expressly denied that he was the Messiah. So we see this if we go back to verse 19 and 20. And this is the record of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. When people pressed John for an explanation of who he was, he said in verse 23, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight way the, make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. So John, had already said in the most plain terms that he was only the forerunner of the Messiah. He had come to prepare the way and to point people to, in the right direction. Andrew and John, the two disciples that were there, would therefore have been caught up in the thrill of the messianic expectation, waiting only for the right person to be identified. That is why as soon as they heard John the Baptist identify Christ as the Lamb of God, the two disciples instantly and eagerly left John to follow Jesus. Then biblical account continues in verse 38. Then Jesus turned and saw them following and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon, the tenth hour, according to verse 39, when they met Jesus. They followed him to the place where he was staying and spent the remainder of that day with him. Since this was near John the Baptist in the wilderness, it was probably a rented house or possibly just a room in a rustic inn. But these two disciples were privileged to spend the afternoon and evening in private fellowship with Jesus 
and they left convinced that they had found the true Messiah. They met, became acquainted, and began to be taught by Jesus that very day. Therefore, Andrew and John became Jesus' first disciples. Notice, though, the first thing Andrew did, as we see in verse 41. He first findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah, thou shalt be called Cephas, which is interp by interpretation a stone. See, the news was too good to keep to himself. So Andrew went and found the one person in the world whom he most loved, whom he most wanted to know Jesus, and he led him to Jesus. As we saw in the lessons on Peter, Peter and Andrew went back to Capernaum and continued their fishing career after that initial meeting with Jesus. It was at a later time, perhaps several months later, that Jesus came back to Galilee to minister. He had begun his ministry in and around Jerusalem where he cleansed the temple and stirred the hostility of the religious leaders. But then he returned to Galilee to preach and heal, and he eventually came to Capernaum. There he encountered the four brothers again while they were fishing. Matthew 4 records that encounter. Let's turn to Matthew 4. We see, so they had already seen Jesus. They had already spent time with him. Peter was then named, or Simon was then named Peter, and then later on, Jesus comes across those four brothers again, showing clearly that they had that bond while they were fishing, and we're going to read in verse 18 of Matthew 4, and Jesus said, and Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. This was where they left fishing for a more permanent, full-time discipleship. So at first they had spent a little time with John the Baptist in the wilderness and, and hearing about Jesus' coming. Then they meet Jesus for the first time and then go back to work, not realizing who, what this was going to become or how they were going to be used. But then Jesus sought them out and called them to the ministry. So a parallel account of this event is recorded in Luke 5, 1 through 11, and you can read that if you would like sometime. But in Luke's account, Andrew's name is not mentioned. We know he was there and was included because Matthew's record makes that clear. But Andrew was so much in the background that Luke doesn't even mention his name. Again, he was the kind of person who rarely came to the forefront. He remained somewhat hidden. He was certainly part of the group, and he must have followed Christ as eagerly and as quickly as the others, but he played a quiet, unsung role in obscurity, which is okay. He had lived his whole life in the shadow of Peter, and he accepted that role. This was the very thing that made him so useful. He, his willingness to be a supporting actor often gave him insights into things other disciples had trouble grasping. That's why whenever he does come to the forefront, the thing that shines is his uncanny ability to see immense value in small and modest things, which we're now gonna look at. He saw the value of individual people, not necessarily the crowds. When it came to dealing with people, 
Andrew fully appreciated the value of a single soul. He was known for bringing individuals, not crowds, to Jesus. Almost every time we see him in the gospel accounts, he is bringing someone to Jesus. Remember that his first act after discovering Christ was to go and get Peter. That incident set the tone for Andrew's style of ministry. At the feeding of the 5,000, for example, it was Andrew who brought the boy with the loaves and fishes to Jesus. All the other disciples were at a loss to know how to obtain food for the multitude. It was Andrew who took the young boy to Jesus and said in John 6, 9, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. John 12, 20 through 22 tells of some Greeks who sought out Philip and asked to see Jesus. These were probably Gentiles who knew of Jesus' reputation and wanted to meet him. In verse 20, John 12, And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. So it's significant that these men approached Philip, but Philip took the men to Andrew and let Andrew introduce them to the master. Why didn't Philip just take them to Jesus himself? Probably it was, he was naturally timid, or maybe he wasn't confident enough to, you know, in his own relationship with Jesus. Maybe Philip just became flustered and confused about the proper protocol, or it's possible that Philip wasn't sure Jesus would want to see them. In any case, Philip knew Andrew could introduce individuals to Christ because he had already done that so many times. Andrew was not confused when someone wanted to see Jesus. He simply brought them to him. That should be our attitude. Amen. He understood that Jesus would want to meet anyone who wanted to meet him. We know this because Jesus says in John 6, 37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will no wise cast out. Andrew was poised and comfortable introducing people to Jesus because he did it so often. He knew Jesus well and had no insecurities about bringing others to him. In John 1, he brought Peter to Christ, which made him the first home missionary. Now he brings some Greeks to Christ, making him the first foreign missionary. The most effective and important aspects of evangelism usually take place on an individual and personal level, not necessarily with the crowds. Most people do not come to Christ as an immediate response to a sermon they hear in a crowded setting. They come to Christ because of the influence of an individual. Both Andrew and his brother Peter had evangelistic hearts, but their methods were dramatically different. Peter preached at Pentecost, and 3,000 people were added to the church. Nothing in scripture indicates that Andrew ever preached to a crowd or stirred masses of people. But remember that it was Andrew who brought Peter to Christ. In sovereign providence of God, Andrew's act of faithfulness in bringing his own brother to Jesus was the individual act that led to the conversion of the man who would preach that great sermon at Pentecost. All the fruit of Peter's ministry is ultimately also the fruit of Andrew's faithfulness, individual witness. It's the individual witness that, that does this. You will never know the impact you may have when doing God's work, but you may be the one who leads that one to Christ who has an impact on many. That's what we need to learn from Andrew's life. God often works that way. Few have ever heard of Edward Kimball. 
His name is a footnote in the records of church history, but he was the Sunday school teacher who led D.L. Moody to Christ. And we all have heard of D.L. Moody. He went one afternoon to the Boston shoe store where the 19-year-old Moody was working, cornered him in the stockroom, and introduced him to Christ. Kimball was the opposite of the bold evangelist. He was a timid, soft-spoken man. He went to that shoe shop frightened, trembling, and unsure of whether he had enough courage to confront this young man with the gospel. At the time, Moody was crude and illiterate, but the thought of speaking to him about Jesus had Kimball trembling in his boots. Kimball recalled the incident years later. Moody had begun to attend his Sunday school class. It was obvious that Moody was totally untaught and ignorant about the Bible. Kimball said, I decided to speak to Moody about Christ and about his soul. I started down to Holton Shoe Store. When I was nearly there, I began to wonder whether I ought to go just then during business hours. And I thought maybe my mission might embarrass the boy, that when I went away, the other clerks might ask who I was, and when they learned, might taunt Moody and ask if I was trying to make a good boy out of him. While I was pondering over it all, I passed the store without noticing it. Then, when I found I had gone by the door, I determined to make a dash for it and have it over at once. So Kimball found Moody working in the stockroom, wrapping and shelving shoes. Kimball said he spoke with limping words. He later said, I never could remember just what I did say, something about Christ and his love, and that was all. He admitted it was a weak appeal, but Moody then and there gave his heart to Christ. Amen. See, it's not... It's not us, but it's God's working in this, in this situation. Of course, D.L. Moody was used mightily by the Lord as an evangelist, both in America and in England. His ministry made a massive impact on both sides of the Atlantic, spanning most of the second half of the 19th century. Tens of thousands testified that they came to Christ because of his ministry. Moody eventually founded Moody Bible Institute, where thousands of missionaries, evangelists, and other Christian workers have been trained during the past century and sent out into all the world. I actually have a commentary that is from the D.L. Moody Bible Institute that I refer to often. It's just, it's amazing what one little person's act and how God used that had a bigger impact. All of that became, began when one man was faithful to introduce another individual to Christ. That's the way Andrew usually seemed to minister, one-on-one. -on -one. Not only that, but he saw the value of insignificant gifts. Some people see the big picture more clearly just because they appreciate the value of small things. Andrew fits that category. This comes through clearly in John's account of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus had gone to a mountain to try to be alone with his disciples. As often happened, when he took a break from public ministry, the clamoring multitudes tracked him down anyway. It was just before Passover, the most important holiday on Jewish calendar. That, that means it, it was exactly one year before Jesus would be crucified. That gives you the timeline. Suddenly, though, even though he left to hide with the disciples, suddenly a huge crowd of people approached. Somehow they discovered where he was. It was nearing time to eat, and bread would be the object lesson in the message Jesus would preach to the multitude. So it was probably his plan here in the first place, knowing the time of day that they were going to be hungry. So he made it clear that he wanted to feed the multitude. He asked Philip where they might buy bread. Philip did a quick accounting and determined that they had only 200 denarii in their treasury. A denarius was a day's pay 
for a common laborer, so 200 denarii would be approximately eight months' wages. It was a significant amount, but the crowd was so large that 200 denarii was inadequate to buy enough food for them. That gives you a picture of the size of the, of the people. So Philip's vision was overwhelmed by the size of the need and the lack of money they had to buy food. He and the other disciples were at a loss to know what to do. Matthew, recounting this same incident, reports that the disciples said in verse 15, Matthew 4, sorry, Matthew chapter 14, verse 15, this is a desert place and the time is now past. Send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals, which means food. In verse 16, but Jesus saith unto them, they need not depart, give ye them to eat. You imagine the disparity, you know, that they have in their minds, like, okay, but how? That, like, there's no way. We don't have what we need to do this. The disciples must have been overwhelmed by that thought. Jesus' demand seemed unreasonable. It's at that point, though, Andrew spoke up. Let's turn to John 6, and we'll, we'll read this account and what Andrew did in the midst of this. John 6, verse 9. So he's sitting in the background, and he's seeing all this and, and their reactions to this, but he sees the small things and, and the way that, that God can use the small things. It says in verse 9, John 6, verse 9, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. Of course, Andrew... Even Andrew knew that five barley loaves and two small fishes would not be enough to feed 5,000 people. But in his typical fashion, he brought the boy to Jesus anyway. That, hit us, that should hit us right in the heart because even though Andrew doubted that amount could be of much help, he knew Jesus could do far more with it. No matter how little confidence we have in bringing someone to Christ, remember that Jesus can do far more with that person than we can. Jesus had commanded the disciples to feed the people, and Andrew knew he would not issue such a command without making it possible for them to obey. So picture when Jesus commands us to go out and, and preach and, and you know, tell people about him and, and lead them to Christ. He's not going to tell us to do something if he's not going to make it possible for us. So Andrew did the best he could. He identified the one food source available, and he made sure Jesus knew about it. Something in him seemed to understand that no gift is insignificant in the hands of Jesus. John continues in verse 10. And Jesus said, make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples. And the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. When they were filled... He said unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, nothing, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. What an amazing lesson that is. Not only just the power that he has to feed and, and having faith, that's often how I've pictured this this specific timeline here, this story, is, is that we should have faith no matter what, but how much power he has in the small things. If we feel inadequate to bring something to him or, or bring someone to him, he's going to do the, the work that we don't seem possible. You know, it's just not, it's not in us. It's God doing the work. Amen. That's the lesson. That 
so little could be used to accomplish so much was a testimony to the power of Christ. No gift is really insignificant in his hands. Remember, in, the, in creation, there was nothing. And then God spoke, and then everything was there. Like, that's the same God that we're talking about here. So it doesn't matter what we bring to him, he will use it. It doesn't matter how small our gift is, he will use it. Our Lord himself taught the disciples that same lesson in Luke 21, 1 through 4. It says, And he looked up and saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow casting in thither two mites. And he said, Of a truth I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all combined. For all these have of their abundance cast in unto the offerings of God. But she of her penury hath cast in all the living that she had. In other words, the poor person who gives everything he or she is giving is a greater gift than the rich people who gave much more out of their abundance. God's ability to use a gift is in no way hindered or enhanced by the size of that gift. And it is the sacrificial faithfulness of the giver, not the size of the gift, that is the true measure of the gift's significance. That's a difficult concept for us as humans to comprehend most of the time. It seems like, and I've experienced this, I'm like, I just don't have the money to give right now, I, so I can't give a tithe. But it doesn't matter how small it is, it's the, it's the attitude and the willingness to give no matter how little we feel like we have, God's going to use it regardless and, and do much more with it than we thought he could. Somehow, though, Andrew seemed instinctively to know that and was not wasting Jesus' time by bringing such a small gift. It is not the greatness of the gift that counts, but rather the greatness of the God in whom it is given. Andrew set the stage for the miracle. Of course, Jesus didn't even need to have that boy's lunch in order to serve the crowd. He could have just spoken and it would have been created and everyone would have been fed. But the way he fed the 5,000 illustrates the way God always works. He takes the sacrificial and often insignificant gifts of people who give faithfully and he multiplies them to accomplish monumental things. Not only that, though, Andrew saw the value in inconspicuous service. He didn't need to be in the forefront. He knew that being in the background was where he needed to be. Some people won't play in the band unless they hit the big drum. I don't know if, if anybody of you are instrument or use instruments or are musical, but if you can be part, one of the big pieces, that's where you want to be. <clears throat> but having the willingness to step in the background is, is far more important. James and John, though, had that tendency. They wanted to be in the fore forefront, and so did Peter, but not Andrew. He is never named as a participant in the big debates. He was more concerned about bringing people to Jesus than about who got the credit or who was in charge. He had little craving for honor. We never hear him say anything unless it is related to bringing someone to Jesus. See, that, that's the, the leadership style. Yes, Peter had a lot of qualities that we want to emulate as leaders in the church, but Andrew had that leadership role in the background that is so much more powerful because he didn't care about what people thought. He didn't care about the role or the honor. He cared more about bringing people to Jesus than anything else. That's, that is a great attitude to have. Andrew is the very picture of all those who labor quietly in humble places. And I know that we have people like that in this church. But 
we probably can't name them all by name because they're in the background, which is great. Ephesians 6.6 6 says, Not with eye service <clears throat> as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. He was not an impressive pillar like Peter, James, and John. He was a humbler stone. He was one of those rare people who was willing to take second place and to be in the place of support. He did not mind being hidden as long as the work was being done. This is a lesson many of us as Christians today would do well to learn. Scripture cautions against seeking roles of prominence, and it warns those who would be teachers that they face a higher standard of judgment. We see this in James 3.1. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Jesus taught the disciples in Mark 9.35, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. It takes a special kind of person to be a leader with a servant's heart. Andrew was like that. As far as we know, Andrew never preached to multitudes or founded any churches. He never wrote an epistle. He isn't mentioned in the book of Acts or any of the epistles. Andrew is more a silhouette than a portrait on the pages of Scripture. After a lifetime of, mystery, of ministry, in the shadow of his more famous brother and in the service of his Lord, he met a similar fate as theirs, remaining faithful and still endeavoring to bring people to Christ right to the end. So was he slighted? No, he was privileged. He was the first to hear that Jesus was the Lamb of God. That had to have been amazing. He was the first to follow Jesus. He was part of the inner circle given intimate access to Jesus. His name will be inscribed along with the names of the other apostles on the foundations of the eternal city, the New Jerusalem. And best of all, he had a whole lifetime of privilege doing what he loved best, introducing individuals to the Lord. Thank God for people like Andrew. They're quiet individuals, laboring faithfully, but inconspicuously, giving in insignificant sacrificial gifts who accomplish the most for the Lord. It's all these people in the background that we don't hear about or see that are doing God's work. They don't receive much recognition, but they don't seek it either. They only want to hear the Lord say, well done. That should be what we want to hear him say. No matter what we do, that should be our focus is what he, bringing people to him and doing his work and not seeking that, that glory and honor in, in the eyes of men. And Andrew's legacy is the example he left to show us that in effective, not ineffective, that in effective ministry, it's often the little things that count. The individual people, the insignificant gifts, and the inconspicuous service. God delights to use such things because... In 1 Corinthians 1.27, it says, God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. We need to have this heart. We need to learn not only from Peter's leadership traits and styles and, and cultivate that leadership, but we, in the background, need to be willing to be that second place guy, the guy in the background doing God's work and, and serving him, no matter what people say. Because it's not, again, it's, we're not doing this for men. We're doing this for God. That's what we need to do. And next week, we're going to look at the life of James, the apostle who was known for passion. I'm excited about next week for sure.
But I was excited about this week, too. <laughs> these guys, man, it's so cool to see their lives individually and, and to glean these different things that we can connect to. I didn't know how much I was going to connect to Andrew until I really dove in, and I was like, man, I need to be more like that. I, no matter what, I need to be willing to be second place. I need, you know, I need to be willing to do whatever it's Jesus is calling, not what, what you know, how am I going to please these people? So I think that's what we should be focused on. Any questions or anything? 